Um, I'm going to start this morning with some grace theology, and we're just going to get into the deep end of the pool. I'm going to tell you uh, out of the gate, I'm going to be preaching today. Sometimes I'm like teaching and preaching. I'm just going to tell you, I'm just going to be preaching today. You're going to feel my passion today. Are you ready for it? I want to start by putting a slide up that I had up last week from the beginning of 2 Timothy. Grace always gets the first word, and it always gets the last word. Grace is the truth, and the truth is grace. Hallelujah. I define grace this way. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Grace is God's one-way love to us. Grace has nothing to do with fair. Grace isn't fair. And let me just tell you, you don't want fair. You don't want fair. You want grace. Grace is unmerited. It is free. You may have heard the statement before like, oh, cheap grace, to which I would go, there's no such thing as cheap grace. I don't know anything about cheap grace. Grace was costly to God, and it is free to us. And because it's free, uh, we must truly, because it's free, because it's God's one-way love, because it's unmerited, we must humble ourselves to receive the abundance of grace that has been poured out on you in Jesus. We must humble ourselves. Pride, shame, performance, they resist God's grace. Pride, shame, and performance makes it about me. And grace is only about God and what he has given uh, to us. Paul begins the first letter to Timothy and the second letter to Timothy with this sentence. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace gets the first word. Mercy, peace. Grace and mercy are a little different. We are saved by the mercy and the grace of God. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And that is the truth of the cross of Calvary, that we have been totally and completely forgiven by the blood of Jesus. Amen? The mercy of God. Grace is not getting what we have earned. Grace is getting what we have not earned. Favor anointing, a new identity that we have in Christ. Mercy and grace positions us to have peace with God, shalom, right standing, reconciled, redeemed, restored relationship. Theology question for you about grace. When did God's grace begin? When did it start? Did it begin at the creation in the garden? Is that when God's grace began? Did it begin with Abraham, Father Abraham? Did it begin when Jesus was born? Or did it begin when Jesus died on the cross? Or did it begin at the resurrection? Uh, our passage today is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 18. 
And this is what Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 1.9 in our passage today. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before, before the beginning of time. So let me ask again, when did God's grace begin? It didn't begin. Grace has always been and it always will be in God. Jesus is the revelation of the grace that has always begun that was always present before the beginning of time. Jesus helps us understand the revelation of what's true, which is the next verse in our passage today, verse 10. Grace has now been revealed. The revelation of grace is Jesus. It began before time began, because it's always been true. But it's been revealed in Jesus, the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Revealed uh, literally means to be made clear, like visible, manifest. Jesus has made what was unseen, seen. The grace of God. And so, as we get into our passage today, I am praying for fresh humility to receive what God has so abundantly given us and revealed to us in Jesus. And I am praying for fresh visibility today, that the clear, undeniable truth of God's grace in Jesus would be seen and known. Um, we're going to work through the passage. It's an amazing text, an amazing text. Uh, it's so filled with truths from heaven that truly liberate us. Um, but I'm going to work through it in three uh, different parts. And so we'll just kind of work through it slowly. Uh, as a reminder, contextually, visualize the Apostle Paul writing these words from a dark and damp Roman prison cell awaiting his imminent death. It is a letter of lament from Paul to Timothy. And visualize Timothy reading this letter in Ephesus Dealing with his own emotions, struggling with his own fear, struggling with his own shame, battling as a pastor and leader of the church against really strong opposition. There is a lot of emotion that's wrapped up in the words of our text uh, this morning. So I'm going to start with uh, Romans, or Romans, 2 Timothy 1, 8 to 12, and before I read it, I want you to know, like, this is one long Greek sentence. So there's a lot of periods that we'll see as I read through this. But in the, in the original language, this is one long sentence. Um, commentators would say that if you want a summary sentence of Ephesians 1 to 3, 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 12 is it. And if you know anything about the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters of Ephesians Paul goes out of his way over and over and over again to pour new identity on believers in Ephesus. It's, it's, it's what we have received in Christ. And all of those chapters can be summarized uh, in this one Greek sentence. And Paul gets totally wrapped up in the joy of the gospel as he writes these words to Timothy. So, verses 8 to 12. Uh, so, Timothy do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God 
who has saved us and, and has called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and that is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. And Paul just, so many incredible truths of the glory of the gospel. He speaks of the power of God. He speaks of the salvation that we have in Jesus. He speaks of God's purpose and grace. He speaks of, of the love of God. He speaks of the destruction of death. He speaks of immortality that's been given to those who are in Jesus. In his own suffering, in his own lament, in his own grief, he is totally convinced that God is able. It reminds me of his words in Ephesians 3.20 that God is able to do immeasurably more than we could even ask, imagine, or think. This is where Paul is as he's writing these words of encouragement to Timothy. And why is he encouraging Timothy? Because Timothy is battling opposition and he's fighting against his own fear and he's fighting against his own shame. And so he writes in verse 8 to not be ashamed. And he starts... Verse 8 with that word, so, uh, perhaps your translation might say, therefore. And so when we read verse 8 and his, his exhortations to Timothy to not be ashamed, we must immediately connect it to the verse before. Why does he say therefore or so in verse 8? Because of what he had just said in verse 7, that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but he has given us a spirit of love and of power and of self-control. Therefore, because you have been given a spirit of love and of power and of self-control, therefore, you can walk without shame in this world. And he invites Timothy, literally, I don't know if you caught this when you're reading through it, like, join with me in suffering. That's the invitation. To which I go, has anyone ever asked you to join Join with them in suffering. Hey, I'm inviting you to do something really special and important. Join with me in suffering. That's literally what Paul is inviting Timothy to do. That's not an easy invite, is it? It's not an easy invite for Timothy or for any of us, but that's exactly what Paul is doing. What do you think Timothy needs to say yes to that invitation? For me, faith and courage. And Timothy needs to be refreshed in his faith and he needs to be refreshed in his courage to continue to say yes to suffer for the name of Jesus as he leads his church in Ephesus. When we live afraid, when we live ashamed, it cripples our faith 
and our courage to be able to endure and to overcome what we have to endure and overcome in our lives. I'm going to read that sentence again. Living afraid, living ashamed, cripples our faith and courage to endure and to overcome. When I wrote that down, faith and courage, I immediately thought of my all-time favorite movie. So before I tell you what it is, I want to ask you a question. What is... What is kind of your favorite movie of all time. Don't shout it out, but just have it, in your, just have it in your mind. What's your favorite movie of all time? When somebody asks me that question, I just rapid fire three movies to them. Gladiator, all time, all time fave. Hoosiers, all time fave. And Remember the Titans, fave. So Gladiator, like strength and honor. Maximus, anybody know that movie? Strength and honor, like faith and courage. I think of strength and honor. Hoosiers, Jimmy Chitwood, anyone, any basketball people in the room, Jimmy Chitwood, like, I'll make it, I'll make it, ah, and he does, and they won the championship. Remember the Titans? We're going to blitz all night, and they will forever remember the night they played the Titans. But it's a movie about overcoming racism. And I was just thinking, like, all, all three of those movies are movies about faith and courage to overcome something. And I'm wondering if the movie that you're thinking about also has some storyline in it about faith and courage to overcome something. And the reason why I think that the vast majority of you, if not all of you, are thinking of a movie that requires faith and courage to overcome is because we are always inspired by faith and courage. Are we not? We're always inspired by faith and courage. And Paul is telling Timothy, you have courage because you have been given power, love, and self-control to overcome and endure the suffering. And I just, I read these verses and I think about where Paul is and I think about where Timothy is and I think about where we are in our lives and I just think we have got to connect this theology with our real lives. We have been given power, love, and a sound mind. So therefore, verse 8, do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord in our day. Faith and courage. God says in verse 9, God has saved us, Timothy, and God has called us to a holy life. And Paul is so clear in this verse, saving us and calling us to a holy life isn't based on anything that we have done. This grace was given us. We need a revelation, I believe, of what has been given us. He spells it out this way in verse 9. It's been given us not because of anything we have done. Grace is God's unmerited favor. In the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of his grace, there aren't any merit badges. There are only sons and daughters who have been given a new identity because of the grace of God and Jesus. It requires humility on our part to receive this new identity. And that's the revelation. Here's the revelation for the humble. Jesus Jesus is the revelation of grace, and he has destroyed death 
and he has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. When Jesus was ministering in his three years of public ministry in the gospels, if you read through the gospels, you, you, will, you will find themes of Jesus proclaiming the kingdom, like the kingdom of heaven is near. And he, he's proclaiming the gospel. He's proclaiming that the kingdom is here, that he is Messiah. And when he's proclaiming the kingdom, when he's pro- proclaiming the gospel, oftentimes he is connecting the gospel to his death and to his resurrection. His suffering, his death, and his resurrection. So the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is near, is directly connected to that, that the truth that he is Messiah and that he will suffer and that he will die and he will raise again. And most of the times when he is proclaiming the kingdom of God and he is predicting his future suffering and death, he will say these words, he who has ears to hear, let them hear. So my question for you this morning as we read these incredible truths of the gospel of Jesus, how's your hearing today? He who has ears to hear, let them hear. The truths of what Paul writes to Timothy in verses 8 to 12. Again, one Greek sentence. It is so essential to the degree that Paul says you must guard this truth with the help of the Holy Spirit. You have a holy calling to guard what has been entrusted to you. What has been entrusted to you? The truth of the gospel. And when I hear the word guard, like, we must think warfare. Like, we think of guarding something. What we're guarding is where, in front of us or behind us? We're guarding something behind us. And, but we're facing where? Forward. So we're facing that which is coming against what we are guarding. Are you all with me right now? This is language that Paul is using to arouse Timothy to stand up and fight the good fight of faith, to to guard what has been entrusted to him, which is what? The truth of the gospel. It's warfare language, and Paul is passing the baton of that responsibility to Timothy, and he'll speak about these things in the next verses. Verses 13 and 14, he tells Timothy, uh, what you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard, there's the word, verse 14. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. This phrase, sound teaching, uh, comes out a few times in First and Second Timothy. This verse is the first time Paul connects sound teaching with pattern. Another way to translate that word that's translated pattern is model. The pattern or the model of sound teaching that's been given to you is what you've been entrusted with. One of the commentators that I was reading this week on this particular phrase, the pattern of sound teaching, uh, understood it this way and taught it this way. Paul makes it unmistakably clear that Timothy is not at liberty to deviate from the apostolic teaching. He is to guard what has been entrusted to him, and he is called to proclaim that in word and deed as well. 
It's a holy responsibility that's been given to Timothy. And again, it is a battle cry. It is so important. These truths are so important. And the responsibility to guard it is so important that Paul tells Timothy, yes, I'm calling you to guard it. And yes, it is a battle cry. But you have been given the Holy Spirit to help you. And the empowerment of that is in verse 12. And so what I want you to do is connect verse 14 to verse 12. Because in 14 is the exhortation for Timothy to guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. And then he says, guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. But be reminded of what he had just told Timothy in verse 12 when he said, I am convinced that he is able to guard. Like, I am convinced that the Holy Spirit is able to guard. And because that's true, I can exhort you to guard with the Holy Spirit's help. So if you're a note taker, I would invite you to write this phrase down. I am able to guard because the Holy Spirit is able. I am able because he is able. I have been empowered and enabled to partner with the Holy Spirit in the advancement of God's kingdom and to guard what has been entrusted to us. Is this relevant for us today? All this, all this language about the truth of the gospel and guarding the truth of the gospel and we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Is this, is this relevant today or do you think it was just relevant for first century Rome? I'm speaking in tongue in cheek. I believe it's certainly relevant for us today. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it runs counter to relativism. It runs counter to pluralism, to polytheism, and to the self-worship of our day. To proclaim the name of Jesus. If you proclaim the name of Jesus, you will stand out in this world. The question isn't, if your testimony is, I believe in the name of Jesus, I have received the grace in Jesus, I I come under the authority of Jesus, I come under the blood of Jesus, I believe that Jesus has defeated death and has given immortal life to immortal people by the name of Jesus, by faith, When you proclaim that, you stand out, period. The question isn't if you stand out. The question is, will you stand up and witness for the truth of the gospel? That's what Paul is exhorting Timothy to do. To not be ashamed of the name of Jesus leading, pastoring, caring, ministering in Ephesus. Jesus said this in John 14, 6, very, very famous, well-known verse. The context of this verse is in the Last Supper. It's before, it's on good, it's the day before Good Friday. Jesus says this on Thursday before Good Friday to his disciples, John 14, 6. Like grace is radically inclusive, truly radically inclusive for all, for all who will come. And if you want some insight into how radically inclusive the gospel is, refresh your memory by writing down Matthew 22. It's the parable of the great wedding banquet. And read what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 22. Invite every 
one. The invitation is radically inclusive, but the way of salvation is exclusive, and it's Jesus alone by grace alone. Jesus says these words, Last Supper, day before he would go to the cross, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There aren't many saviors. There is one Savior. His name is Jesus, the Lord of glory, King Jesus. I, I believe this is absolutely true, and I proclaim it to you. Grace is, again, radically inclusive to all who come, but the message of the gospel of the way of salvation is Jesus. Here's Peter's words. Right after the resurrection, Jesus had just ascended from the Mount of Olives, Acts chapter 1. The disciples are getting all kind of opposition. And, Jesus, and, and Peter, encouraged, stands up, Acts 4, 12. Salvation is found in no one but Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind which we must be saved. The world's message. This is why I believe this is so relevant the world's message is no system can claim absolute truth. The world's message is if it feels good, do it. The world's message is do what makes you happy. The message of Christ is I am the way. I am not a way. I am the way the truth, the life. The message of Christ is you must deny yourself to be my disciple. The message of Christ is you are called, you are called by God to a holy life, a life that carries the aroma of heaven. The message of Christ is God, 1 John 4, God is love. God is the essence and the totality of love and the revelation of love is Jesus. He who has ears to hear, let them hear. Is it hard in our day to stand up for the truth of the gospel? Yes. Will you be, will you be misunderstood? Will you be persecuted? Yes. Did Jesus tell the disciples that the world would hate, literally hate them for proclaiming his name? Yes. Jesus never said it would be easy. He just said it would be worth it. And in our text today, Paul never said it would be easy either. Paul, Paul is not giving Timothy a light and fluffy Christianity to walk in. Would you agree with that? He is literally inviting Timothy to suffer for the gospel. And the living and active word of God is inviting you today, will you suffer for the name of Jesus? Will you stand out? Will you stand up? In grace, in mercy, in love, in kindness, it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. But will you stand for your faith? Paul never said it would be easy either. He knows it all too well. Remember, he's writing from his death cell, church. And he knows all too well the pain of relational betrayal. 
the next verses in our chapter, and it ends the chapter, gives insight into some of Paul's own personal relationships and the sting of betrayal in his own life. Again, there is much for Paul to lament in these, in these words, and that includes relational lament. And he will speak about that in these last verses, verses 15 to 16. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. And I just go, we have to remember that Paul is a human being. And he is holding a lot of emotion in that jail cell. And I don't know about those of you in the room who are also married like me, but when you get exasperated in marriage, you tend to use extreme qualifiers, right? Always, never, anyone, maybe just me, no? Paul's like, he's like, everyone in Asia deserted me, right? Is it true? We don't know, but he is Feeling the deep emotion of those who have betrayed him. And it feels like everyone. But then he specifically names two people that we don't really know anything about. But we know that Timothy knows them. And he knows that Timothy will feel the weight of what Paul is feeling about their betrayal. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. Including Phygelus and Hermogenes. And Timothy's like, no. Verse 16, but may the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. After this morning, you are never going to forget the name of Onesiphorus again. Some of you have never heard of the name Onesiphorus. You did not even know that name was in the Bible. And forever until the day you die, you will never forget Onesiphorus. I'm telling you, Onesiphorus. Why? Why is Paul just speaking all this blessing to Onesiphorus and over his whole family? Because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. Can you imagine how hard it was for Onesiphorus to find Paul in Rome? Paul was in prison for proclaiming the name of Jesus. Onesiphorus was a disciple of Jesus. Not only hard to find out where they were holding Paul, but somehow, someway, Onesiphorus got to Paul and he refreshed Paul. And that phrase, he searched hard for me until he found me. I didn't know that verse was in the Bible until this week. Oh, not When I think of like, like brotherhood, like versus like in Proverbs. Oh, it's literally, I just, just put it over here. Iron sharpens iron, right? I think it, iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. But now, now we got this too, Onesiphorus. He searched hard for me until he found me. And what did he do when he found him? He refreshed Paul. It's incredible. Incredible insight into what was happening in his personal life. May the Lord grant that Onesiphorus will find mercy from the day, from the Lord on that day, 
you know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Chapter 2, you then, my son Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Like Onesiphorus, do not be ashamed of the name of Jesus. He searched hard for me until he found me. I got friends like that. I got friends like that. Andrew, Nate, Steve, Connor, Kenny, Andrew, Jimmy, Ben, Ben, Steve, Greg, Paul, I could go on and on. Jeff, Jeff, JJ, I mean, I could go on and on. I got friends like that. And I want to be a friend like that. Who do you know in prison? Who do you know in prison? I'm telling you right now, you know someone in prison. Maybe not a first century Roman cell, but you know someone in prison and they need to be refreshed. Who do you know? In prison to fear? In prison to shame, someone held captive by addiction or disease, perhaps someone you know that's so stuck in their grief and in their hardship that they can't lament, they can't turn to God. Maybe bitterness and resentment is so rooted in them that they are blind to the truth. Who do you need to search hard for until you find them? Who? Maybe, maybe you are the one that needs finding. Maybe as I share these words, and you hear this story of Paul and Onesiphorus, maybe you are the one that needs finding, and it's time to let someone know, I need and I'm telling you right now, I am searching hard for you right now. Four buddies, four buddies got their friend to Jesus by literally digging through a roof. That is legit. Would you agree? It might take digging through a roof. Like, I don't know what kind of tools they had, but I guarantee you they were sweating. Their knuckles were probably bleeding. And they did it. All right, got to close. Got to close. Worship team, you can come back up. This is an incredible text. Incredible text. Last thing I want to say is this. Death is the enemy and death is a defeated enemy. Christ Jesus has destroyed death and brought life, immortality to light in the gospel. For believers and followers of Jesus, we need not fear death. Amen? We have been given immortality. Death is our entrance into glory. 
And it's why when we go to Celebration of Life services, we worship and sing with gratitude. Certainly we're in grief, but we're not in grief like those who do not have hope. We are in grief like those who do have hope. Hope of what? Hope of literally being in the presence of the glory of God in heaven. This is our faith. I want to read some verses over you as a prayer from the message this morning from Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to invite you to stand as I do this, and then we'll worship together. Jesus, from Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus is now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. And since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And he became the source of eternal salvation. Jesus Christ is calling you by his grace and his mercy to give you peace with God. Come home. Come home. Let's worship.